Good morning, everyone. I think we'll go ahead and get started. Can you all hear me okay? I just uh, want to make sure you've all seen the CME code for today. We're going to, this is um, for Grand Rounds, how we'll be posting the number in the future. You can see the white pages on the side. Hopefully everybody can see that from every place in the room. Um, and hopefully you've got your cell phones teed up to do this, or you can jot down the number if you're going to use your computer to enter it later. And I'll say it out loud for folks who are um, watching remotely and can't see that. And the, so the code for today is G5SM. And it works because I've already done mine. So if you have trouble, I'll help you out later. Um, and with that, we'll get on to our um, grand rounds for this morning. And uh, introducing our speaker today will be um, Dr. Lou Guell, who's the pr uh, professor of pediatrics um, at um, the Geisel School of Medicine and section chief for uh, allergy and pediatric pulmonology. She's the, also the director of p the pediatric cystic fibrosis program here at HMC. <laughs> Good morning. Um, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Jonathan Spurgle, who is a professor of pediatrics and uh, director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at, excuse me, professor of pediatrics at University of uh, Pennsylvania, director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and director of the uh, eosinophilic diseases program there. Um, he's a uh, 1992 MD-PhD graduate of uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, did his pediatric residency at uh, Yale, his allergy immunology fellowship at Children's Hospital of Boston and the Harvard program in Boston, and has spent his entire uh, professional career since then at CHOP, um, it's, it, rising through the ranks from assistant to uh, professor. He's the holder since 2013 of the Stuart Starr Chair of Pediatrics, um, an endowed chair named for the former uh, division chief. Um, and his area of expertise, his area of, of both uh, translational and clinical research, is atopic dermatitis, um, food allergy, and eosinophilic esophagitis. He is currently funded by the uh, NIAID and the uh, NHLBI, um, and is particularly working on uh, desensitization and um, uh, What's the, what's the other word, Stuart? Uh, tolerance, excuse me, tolerance of, of food allergies in the area. So we're pleased to have him speak on eosinophilic esophagitis today. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for the uh, kind introduction, and it's a pleasure to be up here. It's my first time actually up in Dartmouth. I've hit most of the uh, trained at many of the other Ivy League schools, and so it's always nice to come come up here. Um, so I'll be talking about eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, and in talking about it's sort of a novel, a new type of food allergy. Um, these are my disclosures. Um, they're really un... The only thing I get now in this disease, for this, is just funding from the NIH. Um, so that we're going to talk about what is eosinophilic esophagitis, sort of where, how common it is, sort of how to diagnose this, a little sort of the mechanistic stuff, and then finally a little about the treatment, maybe a little on the translational side. Um, so always start with the definitions, and we notice we're all in the same spot. And the definition is purely like many things in medicine. It's sort of a clinical pathological diagnosis. You need symptoms, and you need histology. And the, the disease is, this is the definition that it has, and it hasn't really gotten any, any revisions. The last time we came up with this was back in five years ago. And whether you're in pediatrics or adults, it's the same thing. It's a disease where you have esophageal dysfunction, so the symptoms will go over a little bit, vary on how old you are, what sort of esophageal dysfunction you have, and you get eosinophilic inflammation in the esophagus, hence the name. Um, it is seen throughout the world, seen in every single state in the United States, all of Europe, central, basically every continent, basically just sparing most of Africa. The only place that hasn't been described is in sort of South Africa. Um, and that's unclear why that, if that's a true, just people not looking elsewhere, or is a true genetic, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, predisposition. Um, how common it is, there have been basically people have looked at this disease and over the last 20 to 30 years now, looking, trying to estimate 
the good old prevalence and incidence. And as you, and people have looked at it three different ways. They've looked at basically ICD-9, now ICD-10 codes. They've done questionnaires asking people how often you see it. I've looked at patients' populations purely in based on clinic, or actually there was one study done by random biopsy. In most of the studies, whether in the United States, in Europe, or even in China, it's about one in 2,000. The one study that was done that was higher was done in Sweden, where they actually randomly biopsied a town in Sweden. The fun things you can do in Europe. You actually, they had a town in northern Sweden. They biopsied everyone, and it came out to about one in a hundred. And we'll talk about it in a minute. That town I've learned since then is a isolated town where no one ever leaves. And they're all sort of in a really isolated mountain town. They have a lot of odd genetic diseases because everyone just stays there all the time. So everyone, it's a lot of inbreeding. So that may be a sort of a very disproportionate way to look at things. Um, like many things in the allergy world or in, in other parts of medicine, it has risen. This is whether true in pediatrics and adults. It has risen dramatically. Um, it has probably doubled or tenfold. If you look back at the slide here, you can see that say my pointer is here. Ah, we'll go it this way. Um, you can see a really dramatic rise, and this is back from Alex Schramm's work out of Switzerland in adults. You can see this huge rise in the last, this is back in up to 2000, but you can see the tremendous rise here. When, however, when we try to look at this going back historically, is this a true rise, or is this just a, is this a logarithmic rise, or is it more like the twofold rise we've seen in everything else? We've looked at this as well as some other groups, and everyone seemed to find the same thing. So this is data out of actually West Virginia, where they looked at the rate of positive biopsies back in the 80s to 2000s, 20 years later. And this is a slight rise here, about two of number of positive biopsies. This is data that we, we pulled out of CHOP about a decade ago now. And this is the, the blue bars here, the number of endoscopies. So what was really gone up a lot in the last 20 years is the technology to do endoscopy. So we're actually diagnosing them a lot more. But the rate of positive biopsies has doubled. So I think it's increased, but probably not a logarithmic increase, but probably similar to many other things, about a twofold increase in the last 20 years. Um, so how do we make the diagnosis? This, like as I said before, there's, there's important things. You need esophageal dysfunction. And esophageal dysfunction presents differently. In pediatrics, it can sort of it presents typically as because when you can sort of think about it, the longer the eosinophil has been there, the longer they are, the more pain you get, the more dysfunction you get. So little kids present with it's hurting to eat, so they present with failure to thrive and uh, food refusal. As they get a little bit older, the, the esophagus starts not to work so well, and they get more abdominal pain, dysphagia, and vomiting. And adults almost all present with dysphagia and food impaction. You get true strictures. So about in the adult literature, it's about half of the, the food impactions are due to eosinophilic esophagitis at this point. So, so it's a relatively common thing along those lines. The other important thing, the thing about it in terms of disease, is that it's particularly Male dominant. It's about three times more common in males than females. And you, as you go along, as the other, when you go down and start looking at the esophagus, you'll see this various abnormal features. You get esophageal swelling, you get furrowing, which are these lines down here. You get these white plaques. And initially, we thought all these white plaques were Canada. But when you biopsy them, these are actually eosinophilic microabscesses. Or you get these rings. So normal esophagus is just pink without any rings, completely looking normal. Oops, never mind that. All right. The other thing, the point is, is the inflammation. In the esophagus, you normally don't have any eosinophils. It's a, as a non-pathologist, it's a tissue I can read. So I can read zero. Anything's more, more than zero, I can do. Um, it, but it's important to know when you look elsewhere, and this has been always, that eosinophils are a normal, normal cell in other parts of the GI tract, from the stomach down to the colon. You get, any, depending on, there's some regional differences, anywhere from 20 to 50, depending on where the, what organ you have and some regional differences. So it's, 
It's for eosinophil gastrointestinal disease elsewhere as you need a good pathologist to make sure that this is beyond the normal. But in the esophagus, anything beyond zero is abnormal. But, and when you go down and do the biopsies, you can see a couple things. You can see these severe you know, eosinophilia, all the pink cells are eosinophils. You get superficial layering up top. You get basophil hyperplasia, which I don't show here. And these are these microapsises, these little pusses, pockets of eosinophilic pus. But other things can cause eosinophils in the esophagus. So it's important that you, when you just find it there, that is not say, hey, this patient has eosinophilic esophagitis. There are other things that can cause it there. So when you get that patient with dysphagia or food impactions, to figure out, hey, what else can cause it? Because the most common thing is reflux. I mean, if you just biopsy, and this has been seen now in lots of studies, and this is sort of one of the biggest complications, is reflux, or what we now call also PPI-responsive esophageal eosinophilia, or PPIREE for short, um, is that these patients who put on a reflux medication, a high-dose PPI, they get better. And it's about a third of the patients who present with esophageal eosinophilia will respond to a PPI. And there's a, now there's a debate in the field whether this response to a PPI is that the same disease or a different disease. Um, my bias, it's a different disease, because we, this is, and, but I can give you five other people who will say something else. It's a real split right now. Um, the reason why I think it's a different disease, when you look at the so-called so molecular signature of the disease, when they do transcriptome analysis, there are differences. The patients with PPIREE have changes in some of the PPI, some of the uh, potassium channel genes expression. Um, we have patients who come to us who are failing diet, failing steroids, right? So they're failing all the therapies, but you put them on a PPI, get better. That tells me that they're probably different diseases. But the lot of people in the adult world say, no, I, they don't respond to diet and steroids. But So the, I think it's a little unclear at this point whether P, this is a continuum of the same disease or a different disease. I think at least in um, pediatrics, they're probably different disease, and my guess in adults, that's probably true as well, but I think that's an <laughs> unclear question. Other things can cause it, from simple things like celiac disease, we have eosinophils up and down the GI tract, this eosinophil gastroenteritis, which is a truly different disease, vasculitis, infections, and even graft-versus host all can cause esophageal eosinophilia, so different things can happen. So, now, back so from a purely epidemiological diagnostic standpoint, now we're going to look at pathogenesis. And the question is, this is, goes back to sort of what I started on many years ago. I was originally worked on a mouse model of atopic dermatitis. And eosinophilic esophagitis has this huge overlap with lots of atopic diseases. Why is it, as an allergist, why do I care about GI, a disease that, that I need my GI colleagues to biopsy? It is truly as you'll see, a, an atopic disease, as an allergic disease, and, but it's very similar to other, the other atopic diseases that we treat in allergy, whether food allergy, atopic dermatitis, or asthma. And from one of the things that we know from a genetic standpoint, this is a, um, a GWAS, and this is a Manhattan plot, as you can, so people know from Manhattan plot, you said these are various SNPs, and you get this is the one that we did, the initial one we did five years ago. We had this one gene here, and this is actually TSLP. And we have found that TSLP, and we'll go over some molecular data in a second, this plays a key role in this. And this is gene TSLP, not only turns on, plays a key role in EOE, but turns on various atopic diseases, and important for turning on the TH2 pathway. And we had found that TSLP, the polymorphism, whether you're a at homozygous or heterozygous for this gene, you get an increased expression of TSLP. This increased expression of TSLP also correlates very well with EOE as well as the as basophil expression. When you this is so these are out of water here, but this is okay. So we also looked at more genes. This is a, a more elaborate GWAS done by our, the one on top is out of CHOP, and this is the one out of Cincinnati, 
both finding the same genes. Again, TSOP, CAPIN14, which is a capsaicin that's esophageal-specific. There's this gene called CR11RORF30, which is probably EMSA, which is a transcription factor. STAT6, which is an important gene for turning on TH2. So it's lots of various genes. It's not like most things in medicine, one gene. There's lots of genes causing it. These genes down here, this is the same genes. This is the same gene as that. This is a small messenger RNA uh, playing a lot of various key roles. All right, going back to... But the other thing is, in medicine, nothing is as simple as one gene. And nothing as simple as pure genetics. Because if it was truly simple genetics, every monozygotic twin would have the disease. But in these environmental gene studies out of the group of Cincinnati, when they looked at the rate of EOE in patients of twins, the monozygotic twins had about 40% of the time. So things are not simple uh, genetic. They clearly have some other environmental factors and epigenetic factors, dizygotic twins are about 20% compared to siblings, which are about 2%. But this risk factor is about 80-fold of genetics, which is actually much higher than many other disease diseases that we see, such as like asthma, which is probably 2 to 4-fold. And this is about 80-fold when you look at genetic risk factors. It's a very strong, so it's a really strong genetic risk factor. But it's there are other things, not simply you need more than just the gene, you need other environmental factors as well. All right, so now we're going to go back to the mouse model. Going back, we know that from genetic, the genetic risk factor. This is sort of where I did my initial work, I made mice itch. Um, and what we did back then was we were able to take an allergen, put an allergen on a mouse skin, irritate the mouse skin, and the mice would get inflammation, and we, we called it atopic dermatitis in the mouse. Then we made the mice breathe the same allergen, and the mouse had airway eosinophilia, hyperreactivity, and we called it it's mouse asthma. Um, the work out of um, Cincinnati took the same model and made the mice eat the same allergen, and the mouse got EOE. So you really can do all those same sort of things. We have since worked with uh, David Aris's group um, when he was at Penn, and they took um, over now, just put it on the skin with a vitamin D analog, which is MC903, which causes inflammation of the skin. It irritates the skin. And when you fed these mice continuously, the mice, these are mice esophagus, you would get an eosinophilia. So this is just controlled with, with just alcohol. MC903 by itself, you had one eosinophilia, but when you add MC903 plus over, or, which is egg albumin, you would see a lot of eosinophilia in the mice, hence with EOE. The fun thing that you were able to also do with mice, we were able to show esophageal dysfunction. And you were able to show food impaction in a mouse. So this, these are mouse esophagi. You were able to take them out, and these are put little plastic tubings in there to look at them. And when we did this, none of the control mice had esophageal, had food impactions. But you can see here, one out of three mice, three out of nine, had food impactions. So you were able to make a functional model of esophageal, eosinophilic esophagitis in, in mice. You can make a, a mouse get a food impaction. So the fun thing you can do with mice, which you can't do with people, you can do all fun knockout experiments. You can knock out various genes and treat them with lots of different things. So one of the big things we always think about in allergy is this an IgE-mated disease. This is a class, is this a typical food allergy? Because everything in food allergy is IgE-mated. But in mice, you can knock out IgE and made absolutely no difference. The mice still get the same induction of disease. However, if you knocked out basophils, or you not, which is done here, and knocked out TSLP, the inflammation almost goes completely goes away, and the food impaction completely goes away, suggesting that at least in mice, that this is a TSLP basophil disease, which is different. I mean, mice are not people, but this really suggests that this is a different pathway. So, but we need to look at humans. So, in humans, again, this is. Looking at eosinophils, these are the patients who have active EOE, lots of eosinophils, inactive disease and control, no, TS, no eosinophils. Look at TSLP expression, it seems to correlate very well. This is the immunohistochemistry staining, as you can see, lots of 
TSLP in the staining with patients who have active EOE, and the basophil expression seems to correlate with the eosinophils, suggesting that's a possible, at least in humans, this is a possible mechanism of disease. The other thing that goes on over time is that there is increased fibrosis. So this is the big issue in, in adults. As, as you wait over time, more and more disease, you get more and more fibrosis. So this is looking at fibrosis in patients here. These are looking at fibrotic lesions. This is normal. In pediatric adults, you don't see anything. In active pediatric disease, you begin to see activated fibroblasts, beginning elements of fibrosis, and pediatric goes away. And I think this is one of the problems that we worry why in pediatrics we need to be aggressive. Because in adults, active disease, you get the activated fibro fibroblasts, beginning to show elements of fibrosis. But even in the adults, inactive disease, there's residual activity suggesting that maybe if things have been turned on, you can turn it off. That's why in pediatrics we need, so from our end, from pediatrics, we need to control disease to prevent this ongoing fibrosis, which at this point may be irreversible. In pediatrics, I think we have a chance to reverse it. And the evidence that suggests that is work by both Alex Stroman and Evan Dellen, who've looked at Fibro the evidence of fibrotic st strictures in adults. And what they found here in this nice plot is the longer you wait the, with the age of diagnosis, the risk of having a fibrotic lesion increases, suggesting that untreated disease leads to fibrosis, which is not surprising. This is true probably for most diseases that we treat. If we leave inflammation alone, you can get fibrosis. And fibrosis is really a complication we wanted to avoid. So as you can see this, as you go over over time, the rate of fibrosis seems to increase. We don't know this is going to be true for every patient, but at least overall it suggests that it's important to treat the patients to prevent fibrosis. All right, here's my my schema or my little plot, which I think goes on. Um, we know over time that acid by itself will cause, will cause esophageal damage, and esophageal damage causes inflammation of, of damps, and these damps will lead to increase of both IL-33 and TSLP. TSLP then comes on and turns on mast cells, turns on TH2 cells and activates basophils, it's, it promotes dendritic cells and energy-presenting cells to lead to more expression of a Th2-type phenotype. These Th2 phenotypes lead to expression of IL-5 and IL-13. IL-13 directly decreases, makes the desmoglein and the esophageal barrier here weaker, leading to more things penetrating. <coughs> IL GERD itself and some other factors actually can lead to induction of eotaxin 3 or CCL26, which lead to eosinophils coming along. These eosinophils come along, leading to various fibrotic factors causing the fibrosis that we see in EOE. So this is what we think happens at the current time. The microbiome has some role, but what that role is on is unclear. There is a difference in the microbiome in active versus inactive disease but that active microbiome is just this normal active microbiome that you see in patients who have active inflammation and maybe relatively nonspecific. Maybe that the inflammation is causing the changes in the microbiome, not the microbiome is causing the inflammation, causing the changes in uh, inflammation because the microbiome is a more scavenger microbiome. All right, treatment. So now we have a disease, it's rising how should we treat it? And when we treat things, we always, I always go, well, we, and the answer is we don't know what the right answer is, to be long and short. There's multiple ways to treat it. And the first thing is when we always come to the families, we say, hey, we, first of all, we always make sure we have the right disease, that, we do, that we've ruled out the other causes of esophageal eosinophilia. And then we say, families, there's three basic ways to treat it. You can do diet, and we'll go over the evidence for diet. You can treat it with pharmacologic, you can treat it with medications, or you can physically dilate it. And those are the three basic ways you can treat disease. And we'll go over each one, which, or you can do combinations. And that's the other thing you can do. You can do diet and steroids, various forms of, of diets. You can do any, any of the above. So dilatations. The goal of dilatations is to go in the esophagus and dilatate, to rip the esophagus, open it up. That is the goal of, the, of doing this. The goal is, is to open it up and have the esophagus wide open. So how well does it work? 
the good news, in about 85% of the patients, patients feel better. It's really good. Um, the bad news, it recurs in three, three to eight months. When they initially did start doing it back in the early 90s, they had a fair amount of perforations and chest pain complications. Talking to people recently, no, the number of perforations recently have gone way down, but most people still have post-procedural pain. Um, depending on, so the good groups, so this is Alan Scheffler or in, in, with Alex Strom's group out of Switzerland, they really don't have any problem. Some less experienced groups still report problems with tears. So you need a good, a good gastroenterologist to make sure that it doesn't tear. It works, but it's really a temporary measure. In pediatrics, we almost never do dilatations because of that risk factor. Instead, we use systemic steroids. We do a medical dilatation. We'll put them on a course of prednisone for two to four weeks, get rid of inflammation that way, which gives off what we do with steroids. You could treat people with systemic steroids. The problem is it's sort of not a great long-term therapy because there's way too much side effects. So we just use it again for just short-term courses for, for use of strictures and instead of dilatations. However, what the main way of treating it is off-label use of topical steroids. So what people, you basically take your asthma medicines and take them poorly. You basically take a, as you can just basically use any asthma medication, and I can tell you it changes all the time because our insurance, at least down in the Philadelphia area, the insurance companies make us change our inhaled steroids on a every six month basis. Not monthly, but every six months we can switch from Asmonex to Flovent and to Cuvar, keeps on changing. And then back to Flovent, whoever has the cheapest rate. Um, so you, in theory, you can use all the same agents. So basically, you take an inhaled steroid as a puffer, you puff it in the back of the mouth, you do really bad technique, so no spacer. You swallow, you have patients swallow it when you don't swish and spit. So you really do the opposite of what you do for asthma. And the doses are tend to be relatively high. So for fluticasone, it's typically people use 222 puffs to four puffs twice a day. The other way people do is with budesonide. This is, the, this is you can see with fluticasone, this is one of the original studies back from a decade ago now, that it really works in about 80% of the time. Patients' symptoms, whether you look at biopsies or look at symptoms, patients, almost everyone gets completely, about 80% completely better. And however, you, as soon as you stop it, it does come back in most patients, but it does work you, it, along those lines. The other way is with swallow budesonide, and this one is probably the closest to getting, getting FDA approval as an agent. It's currently in a phase three clinical trial that I've actually, I'm not involved with it at all. But they're using vis oral viscous budesonide. So basically, old Pumacort respules, they've mixed it into a thick packet, and you swallow it. Uh, they're coming up with a suspension so you don't have to mix it yourself. And again, you can see patients on oral viscous budesonides have significant improvement. They get about 80% respond. Placebo group, they had a few patients just respond. These are your PPI, REE patients. They just responded to the PPI about 10 to 15%. Symptoms and biopsies really worked well. Um, you can mix it with anything. A lot of our patients in pediatrics don't like to use artificial sweeteners and all those sort of things. So you can actually use almost anything to make it into a viscous slurry. Our favorite ones these days are honey and maple syrup. So good up maple syrup from uh, New England. You can just mix basically a, tea a teaspoon of honey, like the old Mary Poppins thing. Um, mix it into with uh, oral viscous budesonide. You swallow it and you don't eat or drink for 30 minutes afterwards. It works very works well and it's a good way to, as you can see, almost all these patients' response. The only one that didn't work was was a really small and one patient tried rice cereal, didn't work, but basically anything that you can make into a thick slurry works. Xanthan gum is we have some we had a, a pharmacist, we had a kid who was a pharmacist, a, co a compounding pharmacy whose kid had EOE, so she started compounding the things herself using xanthan gum. It worked well as also. So you basically anything anything you can mix it in does work. 
Um, side effects from using off-label use, you can get oral candidiasis about 5 to 10% of the time. Often you just can treat it and continue on treatment. No one's really looked at the long-term side effects of growth and adrenal suppression. Um, the evidence for that is going to be a little unclear. The, the good news is it should be less because you're really getting no systemic absorption because once it, it's really truly hitting topically in the esophagus, it's a very short transient time. Most of these drugs, particularly budesonide and fluticasone and momentazone, all have really high first pass metabolism. So they should relatively be inactive. But the bad news is you're using doses four to, four to eight or even ten times higher than you do for asthma. These doses for asthma, these are one to two milligrams a day of budesonide typically for asthma, we're, we're doing 0.25, we're doing a quarter of the dose. In Flovent, we're doing 880, a Flovent or 1716, high dose Flovent is usually 440, so you're doing much higher doses. So we don't know, but it's, well, that's going to have to wait and see as more data comes out. The other, the other thing do, that I do worry about is, and this is true for all diseases with with inhaled steroids, do we treat the underlying disease? And we know this is true for asthma, that when we treated for all the asthma studies, we didn't change the natural history at all. And when you looked at all the CAMP studies and the IMPACT studies and all these various studies that well-designed NIH-controlled trials, they really didn't change the natural history at all. And with inhaled steroids, this is a study by uh, Alex Lucendo out of Spain, and he treated kids with high dose, adults with high dose flovin. And you saw a dramatic improvement of esophageal eosinophilia, almost complete resolution. But the fibrosis didn't get better. So it, the, the issue is in adults, using either it's fixed and we can't change it no matter what, or flovin doing inhaled steroids doesn't change disease. There's some smaller scale data out by Seema Aceves and Munir Shahadi that looks like in pediatrics that it might be true in pediatrics that you might be able to reverse things. This may be more of an issue for adults. Um, so why again in my analogy, why do as an allergist can care about this disease? So why do, why, what's the role of atopy? So for the first thing is this is sort of, these patients are my most, some of the worst atopic patients that walk into our clinic. In general, asthma is maybe 10%, seasonal allergies 20 to 40%, food allergy 1 to 5% of the general population. However, if you look at an EOE, and these are both EOE populations in pediatrics and adults, about half to about 50%, 25% to 50% have asthma, so a huge high rate of asthma. About 75% have seasonal allergies, and about 20% have classic IgE-mediated food allergy. So these are the patients that walk into my clinic who have bad asthma, bad eczema, now complaining of bad reflux, trouble swallowing, I send them to the GI and they have EOE. So this is sort of a very atopic population, probably due to the, having that risk allele of the TSLP. Um, the other funky thing is, we were originally published out of Iowa, which has now been replicated in about 10 different studies, is this issue of seasonal diagnosis. And what they looked is there's an increase in diagnosis in the spring and in the, in the summer and decrease in the winter. Now, the question was, this is just just based on sheer number of patients, people coming in for clinic, one point someone was telling me it was decreased because in the, in the winter time was when the GI meeting was, NASPGAM, was over here and some people have less biopsies. But it's been seen in lots of studies now, so it's probably not true. And the other thing that we found over a decade ago, we had this, we had this one adult patient who presented with EOE only in the spring pollen season. At EOE here, here and here during the pollen season, and the winter time would go away. This is sort of a normal biopsy in the fall, in the winter, and all the inflammation that you see classically in the springtime pollen season. We were able to replicate that. About we have about four patients who have this purely seasonal EOE, uncommon, but it does happen. But we've seen, and the other thing that this was the group out of Turkey, Ombasi, looked at biopsy people just regular, a regular population in and out of pollen season. And these are patients, they're allergic to patients who have asthma or allergic rhinitis. These are patients with reflux. And you can see this is one patient here, who, and there's definitely some esophageal eosinophilia in pollen season. In the normal, out of the season, everything seems to go away, suggesting that it does occur. 
We then went back and sort of did a retrospective look at what we saw in our patient population. How many patients said, hey, I have it? And it was about 10%. We had, when we did this last year, we, had, we, we looked at about 1,200 patients, but 160 said they had it. About, a, about a, th a fifth of those patients we were able truly to confirm had pollen-associated EOE. So it's not a lot of patients, but it does, definitely does occur. Some patients said we couldn't confirm it at all, then a lot of patients we couldn't confirm it one way or not because they were doing multiple things at the same time. The biopsies were changing, but they were doing lots of other things. The only ones we can confirm were the patients who had absolutely not doing anything else at the same time. And not surprisingly, you would see biopsies in the season with lots of eosinophils, and out of season, everything seemed to get better. All right, so what about foods? Why is this a novel food allergy? So the original evidence from this came from actually from a case report back in the late 70s when people, it was a patient who had reflux, food allergy, esophageal eosinophilia. But it really comes from the work from Kevin Kelly and Hugh Samson back in the late 90s when they had 10 pediatric patients who had persistent reflux who had failed a Nissen fundoplication. And they gave them an amino acid formula and the biopsies completely resolved. Eight, eight out of ten completely normal, two almost completely better. Interestingly, they didn't completely have an elemental formula. They were eating apples and corn, so they had a few other foods, but basically everything got better. They really had complete resolution, suggesting that taking foods out by either putting them on an elemental diet or giving sort of bowel rest completely led to resolution of the symptoms. So just taking a step back, what, what, when we think of food allergies, what do we classically think about? So food allergies in broad terms are adverse reactions to foods. And you can have toxic reactions like food poisoning. Then you can non-toxic reactions get broken down into two main categories. Food intolerances like lactose insufficiency or the carbohydrates and sucrose insufficiencies. Then you get classic food allergies, which are the IgE-mated ones, which are the classic peanut anaphylaxis and milk anaphylaxis and non-anaphylaxis in adult and more in fish. Those are your classic TH2. But the non-IgE-mated ones are typically intestinal ones. The most common one in pediatrics is called food, one is called food protein induced anacolitis, which is the, the kids who eat milk have horrific vomiting, and that's a sort of non-IgE-mated disease. So, Going back, we really sort of did a larger scale look at what patients, how many patients respond to elemental diet. So Chris Lee, of course, in our institution published this a decade ago. Basically, we looked at about 170 individuals. Basically, everyone responded to the diet. We only had four failures. Basically, everyone four weeks later, the esophageal eosinophilia resolved, the symptoms survived, the sphagia resolved, everything was completely got better. Everything, so complete resolution of the symptoms within four weeks of ther therapy, which really suggests that it proves disease. However, the way to truly prove the disease is sort of by cost postulate. And this sort of proves cost postulate and shows a really interesting thing that this is a different pathway. So the, one of the big things now in the allergy world is something called oral immunotherapy. It's a great thing. You can give people food and you can desensitize them like we do with allergy shots, but you do it orally. You slowly increase the food over time. You can make people non-allergic. So this is sort of a case report that was one of the first ones that really brought it out. This is a little girl who had egg allergy. At one, had highs. At four, had an accidental exposure, had anaphylaxis. At 10, goes under oral immunotherapy for eggs. After two months, is able to eat eggs. Now, seven months later, has really bad dysphagia. They put this kid on a PPI, they biopsy him, has EOE, they take the egg out, re-biopsy, everything goes away. This really proves that's cost postulate, that hey, if you added a food to cause disease. The other thing that this proves is that it's probably not IgE mediated. And this has now been seen in lots of different studies. This is originally was done with egg. If you look at all the oral immunotherapy studies, there's about a 20% failure rate all failing because they're having persistent GI symptoms, particularly vomiting. So it's unclear how many of them are all EOE, because most people don't biopsy them. They just take the food, take the food away, people get better. So this 20% failure is probably due to um, EOE. And this suggests that it's a different, it's foods cause EOE, it's, but it's, pr it's not an IgE-mediated mechanism. It's a TH, it's probably TH2, but not IgE.
And we also know that the fact when we give anti-IgE, people have tried anti-IgE both in pediatrics and adults for treating EOE, doesn't work, had absolutely no effect whatsoever, suggesting that this is a different pathway. And we also know this also by natural history. Now this is a patient that we had who had EOE, had IgE mediated reactions to milk, had hives to milk, and interestingly had failure to thrive because they were eating so few foods, so I actually had a biopsy. And esophageal biopsy was completely normal. We had, this is a skin test size, skin test size slowly decreased over time. So we did a food challenge to make sure the person wasn't allergic to milk so we can add food back into the diet. Patient's now eating milk. And all of a sudden starts developing GERD symptoms. So GERD symptoms get better enough three years later now, gets a biopsy. Biopsy shows all esophageal eosinophilia. Skin test now is completely negative. It's completely gone over here. And then you we take the milk out re-biopsy and everything goes away. So what I think is happening is not that all these th th therapies are causing disease, but I think this one food or one allergen is causing two diseases. It's causing IgE-mated anaphylaxis as well as EOE, so one allergen causing two different diseases. And when we do the oral immunotherapy, we treat one of the diseases and sort of uncover the EOE. So the question is, how do we pick the foods? There are basically two ways to do it. One is the guess method, which actually works really well, which is sort of as, as, a, as a scientist and an allergist, really disappointing, but it does work really well. This is the work done by Amir Kalawago out of Northwestern, who developed the so-called six-food elimination diet. It's really six, four-food groups. It's milk, soy, wheat, egg, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish. So if you actually want to count the foods, you're probably 30 to 40 foods, but six food groups. And they basically had this always as interesting as the same, about 80% improvement when they did that initial study. When they started adding the foods back, it was primarily three foods, milk, wheat, egg, and soy, almost no one to fish or shellfish. Um, and in this initial population of 30 kids, it was primarily one food in most of the kids, a couple foods with two and a couple with three. They, uh, Nimi Gonzalez at Northwestern looked the same thing in adult. Her, the response rate in adult was less. It was about 60% now who had response rate in the fifth, so in the adults. And interestingly, it still was wheat and milk. And, but skin testing didn't identify anyone. That didn't really help at all. Again, suggesting this is not an IgE-mediated disease. So what about testing? So now that's the other way. Can you test? So te the classic way of testing a fruit allergy is skin testing. So skin testing is you put an allergen on your skin, you scratch, and you look for um, a wheel and flare. Histamine release. Um, the other way you testing is what I did for about a decade, which was called ATP patch testing. And that's the old, less like the patch testing you do for nickel allergy, where you put an allergen on your skin, you leave it on for 48 hours, you take it off looking for a delayed hypersensitivity reaction, looking for a uh, basically erythema, induration, and for food allergy patch testing, looking for more papules. When we looked at that, you can see, I'm not going to read the foods, but you can see it's pretty classic foods for IgE-mated skin testing. And then patch testing, you get slightly more grains with some wheat and corn showing up and some of the meat showing up a little bit higher. When we, when we went back and looked at what foods cause disease, so this is what we published about five, four, year, um, four years ago now, looked at what foods cause disease, and we classified this into three main food groups. One's by biopsy. So these are foods that you can take a food in and out by biopsy showing causing disease. And it's the same thing that Amir found was milk, egg, soy, wheat. Those are the big four foods. A couple other ones show up with sort of like some of the meats as well as the grains. Then we have IgE-mated reaction. These are patients who have anaphylaxis to a food. Then these are the foods that when they added it back in, they were too symptomatic to biopsy. They started vomiting, so you couldn't even have a chance to biopsy. So we went back and said, okay, knowing this retrospectively, what if we would do and we go back and say, hey, bef before testing, let's go back and say, let's say, hey, we, if we, did a, we know what foods cause your disease in this patient population, what really works? So we went back and looked, and this was about a 1,000 patient population. So if we do allergy testing alone, we got about the same data as that they did in the adults, about 
If you did the six food elimination diet, A got the same 50%. Almost down, one was 51%, one was 52%. They're basically identical. So you can guess as well as you can test, which is highly discouraging. Um, the one advantage of testing is you eliminate less foods than the six food elimination diet. So we looked at various combinations. If you did milk alone, it was about a third, which is pretty consistent with what people have seen in the literature. Um, milk, egg, and wheat was about the same 50%, so it's a little bit of an easier diet to do. What works the best, you can empirically take off the top eight foods, which is milk, egg, soy, and the meat, or do allergy testing and remove milk empirically. And both of those now, you're in the mid-70s. If you put people on elemental diets, you're in the high 90s. So you can get everyone better, but that that's really hard. So we, we did, uh, a lot of our teenage girls like to do vegan diets. So we looked at vegan diets. That also worked about 50%. So you can do a diet from clinically now what we typically do. We'll do typically a milk, egg, wheat diet. Say here's, if you want to do diet, let's do this. Because we know if you go beyond that, no one's going to comply. And they say, okay, you're not getting better with the milk, egg, wheat. Then, hey, let's do this. We have a dietitian in our in our office, when we want to do diet, they go over what they can do. Um, I always tell families, look, hey, if you're going to do diet, it's going to be really hard for the first month, because until you know what you can, what you can and can't eat. I mean, I was diagnosed with, so here's my personal story, I was diagnosed with celiac disease in my mid-40s, um, and it was hard for the first month, but now it's really easy. I know I can eat chicken, I can eat rice, I can eat potato, I can eat any fruit and vegetable. It's not that hard. You just know what you can eat. You go to a restaurant and like, okay, I'm not going to order pasta. I'm not going to have that bread. But you're going to have the salad. So it's not, you just sort of need to know what you can and can't eat. Um, it's the same thing with this. Once you sort of know what you can, you're like, okay, hey, I'm a milk, egg, wheat. I can go out and have fish. I can have salad. I can have a hamburger. I can have chicken. You can just need to know what, what you can eat. Um, the other interesting thing is, we know this is true for IgE-mated food allergy, and apparently it looks like it's also true for EOE. When you cook the food, particularly with milk and egg, and it seems to, and you put it in like a cake, it seems to change the allergen presentation enough that many of the kids seem to tolerate it. Both for tr true in pediatric and adults, that when you bake a cake, so this was a work done by the group out of MGH, so John Leung, they found when they, the kids who had milk-induced EOE, about two-thirds of them were able to tolerate milk in a cake, but not pizza or cheese, but milk that's baked in a cake, and the same thing true for egg. We're finding a slightly lower number, but again, that makes life a little bit easier. If you can say, hey, you can have milk in a cake and a cookie, they're much more willing to do the diet. Like, hey, you can't have a glass of milk or ice cream, but you can have your, you can have the cake and you can have that pancake, but you can't have the along those lines. So it makes that a little bit easier to do. All right. So the last thing is, again, as in terms of a novelty, it EOE is probably not an IgE mated disease. We know when you do IgE in mouse models, IgE knockouts have no real effect. Anti-IgE or omelizumab has no difference in disease. When we look at specific IgE, whether by skin testing, by immunocap, by microarray, it doesn't work at all. The one microarray study is sort of funny. People actually got worse. <laughs> they, the, their eastern for counts actually had zero improvement. They went up. It is these patients are highly atopic, so when they if they get there, they, a lot of these patients have it, but it's probably unrelated. IgG4 testing, which is what we shows what people are eating. There's some suggestion that it may play a role. There's a high deposits of IgG4 in the esophagus, but the blood testing really doesn't show it has not been helpful at all. So work by Fred Clayton out of Utah have looked at this now and doesn't seem to be helpful as a testing, but there is a fair amount of IgG4 complexes in the, in the esophagus with this, suggesting that there's maybe some immune complex. So it's probably not an IgE-mediated disease. It's a disease of TSLP and basophils, a TH2 disease, but not IgE. So for this, I would say no. Um, the other thing is down the line, 
coming in the future is can we do non-invasive biopsies? So there are lots of things being worked on in the current time to look at ways of getting esophageal tissue without doing an endoscopy or biopsy. So people can do there was another one that's not on the even list here. You can do sort of a nasopharyngeal endoscopy, just keeping people without sedation. You can do the esophageal string test, which is the old string test here. You can swallow this little capsule. You leave the string in the esophagus for anywhere unclear how long, but at least an hour, but maybe overnight. You can leave in. There's the cytosponge, which is this. This little capsule opens up and you pull it out. And the esophageal brush is what you do for Barrett's. And when they looked at, this is for the string test, this is the biopsy curves, the RSC curves, and they look really good. So you can actually get eosinophilic proteins. You could probably get enough eosinophilic proteins on a string test. Or a brushing, this is the brushing, esophageal brushes. You can see it's a pretty well, it works out pretty highly. You actually may be getting more esophageal tissue with the esophageal brushes and the string test or the cytosponge than you do with just a biopsy. Biopsies get very few tissues. This is a, a patchy disease, so you actually may get increased sensitivity. And along these lines, and this is the cytosponge, you can see looking at EDN staining here, you can see positive staining with patients with active disease compared to control. The other thing that people have been doing is called, this is the work out of Cincinnati, is the um, looking at a molecular signature, but honestly, at this point, that doesn't replace anything. Of course, you still need esophageal biopsy. It doesn't differentiate of anything. It's good from a research standpoint because it really shows that it's a TH2 eosinophilic lymphocyte inflammation, but it really doesn't differentiate disease yet. So just a summary, EOE is an atopic disease. It is TH2 driven, but non-IgE. It probably involves basophils as a high genetic risk factor. It's increased like other atopic diseases. Our treatment options are really diet and steroids. And we know untreated diseases are risk factor for stricture. So we, even, we do def definitely want to treat patients. And the last thing is I need to acknowledge all the people who work with me. Um, and one of them, one of the Kukola rectal surgeons, I don't know if she's here, Lauren Tocken, originally was, worked with me many years ago. So I would thank her. She helped us when, when she was working us along those lines. And I also acknowledge all my various sources of funding. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, a few minutes to spare. Time, plenty of time for questions. Anybody want to start with a question? Uh, yes. Tim. I've got a, a quick question for you. Um, if you're faced with a patient who's failed to swallow public cord and who's, sweat, who's failed diet um, and is still loaded with the acidophils and the esophagus, what, what's the approach that you take for that patient? So if they failed diet and they failed steroids and they've had a positive and they've been on a PPI, so to make sure they've been on a PPI, sometimes they need to make sure you have the right disease, they've been on a PPI. So we will either at that point or say, hey, there's two things to do. One is to be more strict on the diet. You can put people on an elemental diet. The only time we do elemental diets is probably threefold. One is a patient like this who's failing everything just to get them better if they're highly symptomatic. We'll put them on an elemental diet for a month, get them better, and add things back. Um, the other two times we do elemental diets are the infants and toddlers, because they don't care, or people who have G-tubes. So someone like that often will put them on elemental diet, or if they don't want to do that, we'll say, here, we'll put you on swallow whatever steroid you, you get approved this month, plus take milk out, sort of do a combination to get them better. Because sometimes if you do just the diet alone, you do the top four or five foods, then maybe they're having disease from potato, right? And you, you're not going to guess potato. Right, so you need the swallowed steroids to control the potato, but if you just did the swallowed steroids, milk's such a big allergen that it's not, the milk's overriding the swallowed steroid dose. So you would need a huge dose, so you end up needing the combination. So that's what we often will do. Yeah. I have a question about inexactitude of diagnosis. I was thinking there are two big, relatively common diseases that overlap with EOE, 
um, and guessing wrong would really sort of skew diagnostic approach. Yes, I agree. how you deal with these. So the two examples are, uh, one is Crohn's disease, uh, uh, notable prevalence of uh, eosinophilia, and that group could have some similar disease manifestations, yes. particularly if they have eosinophilic enteritis. Um, lots of immunosuppressive therapies uh, right. you missed if yeah. you thought it was EOE. On the other end of the spectrum, there's GERD, and just having a eosinophilic response to reflux. So I'm curious, knowing that there's the possibility for sort of getting in the wrong box, how do you manage it, that? It's a, it's a great question. I, um, so for one is so for the Crohn's one, it's maybe simple. Maybe simpler. Um, they often have lower GI symptoms. So if they have lower GI symptoms, but not all do. I, we had a patient recently who we thought had EO, who had EOE. We put him; he was doing fine. Then all of a sudden, started developing Crohn's symptoms. Then we went back and pulled the old biopsy, and we realized probably we never had ear. We probably we was probably misdiagnosed. So it happens, but I think we just for those you sort of follow symptomatically. If they have sort of lower symptoms, I think it's a different disease. So typically EOB is purely upper symptoms. A couple occasions we'll get diarrhea, but typically it's different symptoms. So that's the way we separate for that. For reflux. And this is sort of the big controversy at this point in the field. Um, we always put them on a high-dose PPI, and I'm not sure how high is high. I think this, I vacillate on that, for one to two months. Then we scope them, without doing anything else. And we see a lot of patients who we undiagnose with EOE by doing that, because I think you're totally correct. That's a different... You, the therapy option is completely different. You just have eosinophils are just a normal response to injury. And the acid, I, I believe, is just causing esophageal injury, and you're getting eosinophils there. Why some people get more eosinophils, other people get neutrophils, I, I think that's an, an individual phen different phenotype. These patients get eosinophils, and I think you need, you need to do that trial. You need to do that because it completely, I agree with you, completely changes your management. Because one patient, you put them on a PPI, they get better, and once you're well, you can stop the PPI. Someone with the EOE, you basically can't stop it. You have, this is a, for a vast majority, a lifelong disease. I mean, I, we have probably less than 5% outgrow it. Really rare. So that's the way I, it is, an, it is a, a challenge, and we always sort of, that's the first thing that we always go through, trying to fix, separate the two of them out. I actually have a question. <laughs> so, sure. um, you mentioned the, uh, the difference in um, response in adults with fibrosis, yeah. and, and suggested that's related to uh, duration of disease, and I wonder if it's possible that there are also differences in pathophysiology in adults and children. Uh, so, uh, so the, it's a great question. So I think so. This short answer is we don't know, um, but I can think of it two ways. And one is: is there a true adult onset disease? Is there a different disease that, that occurs in adults than pediatrics? And I, the evidence for that's a little mixed. If you ask most of the sort of, I don't say older adults, but we'll see younger adults in the 20s. If you ask them, or you get them, you still can get their parents. And you ask, did this, did he have reef bed? Was he a baby who spit up a lot? Right. And most nine times out of ten, the answer is yes, but not always. But then there are people who say, no, I was kid was healthy, I had nothing. All of a sudden, I got got it out of the blue. And is the, is there some environmental hit? that happened, whether it was some unknown virus or some <laughs> secondary injury that they got hit. So there may be some, there may be a group, like in other atopic disease, there is, like in asthma, there's adult onset asthma. There may be adult onset EOE. There's, I think EOE is probably closer to atopic dermatitis. There is an adult onset atopic dermatitis, but small, it's maybe 20%. That's probably going to be true, I would guess, for EOE. We sort of classify everything together. I think now we're, 
we're getting smarter. We're gonna, there's going to be a probably like in asthma, there's mild, moderate, severe. There's going to probably be a severe phenotype that's a fibrotic phenotype. Probably not everyone's going to have that. But because no, we can't say, oh, you have this, you're going to be a fibrotic phenotype, you're not. So I think I come back in 10 years, I'll say, hey, if you have this factor, we'll personalize you and say, based on personalized medicine and your exome, you have this exome and this one, you're going to have this phenotype. But we're, I think, a long way from that point. But I think, yes, but I, I hesitate because there's no evidence to support that yet. The difficulty of studying an emerging disease. Yes. I think we might have time for one more. We can squeeze in one more question. No, we really are past the hour. Yeah. So, so well, thank you. For thank you so much.